bodies will be changed and forever will be with him. That's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Amen. Well, take your Bible, if you would, turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to read through verse 24 to 27. 24 to 27 tonight. Let's all stand for the reading of the word tonight, please. The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, it says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Father, we come to you tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would meet with us. 
you'd speak to us. Lord, you'd have your will, your way in our lives. Father, help us to be open. I don't believe anyone came to church tonight with the idea they're just going to fall asleep and take it easy. I think they could have slept a lot easier in a a chair or at home on the couch. They came here because they want to hear from you. They want their hearts stirred and encouraged. Father, they want to honor you. So, Lord, I pray, dear God, that you'd help us to listen with spiritual ears tonight. And, Father, may you fill me with your Holy Ghost. May you stand in my shoes. May you just, Father, give to me a holy unction from on high. I have nothing to offer you or them in myself. I just pray that you'd use me now as an instrument in your hand. And, Father, may the Word of God truly impact our lives tonight and make a difference both now and for eternity. We'll thank you for it, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> In our passage, we notice a couple of things. We notice a race. We notice the race. Verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. The writer here, he recognizes that the believer has a race to run. He has a goal, which is to win. You know, it's sad today in the culture in which we live how sissified we're becoming. How uncompetitive we become. You know, we don't want our young men too aggressive. We don't want people to really want to win. We just want them to play. Let me tell you something. Life isn't about playing. It's about winning. It's funny how they'll go to school and they'll play in sports and everybody gets a trophy. I kind of like that commercial that was on not long ago with that fella and he's got that trophy and all of a sudden his kid gets one just says something about, you know, you, you, you uh, participated. And he thought, well, we won the championship. We're champs. Before it's over with, he's writing champ on the trophy and giving it to his kid again. And I kind of like that. Because, see, there's nobody that's going to graduate high school and go out in the world and then just go, well, we all participate, so we all make equal pay for, you know, whatever we do. I can work at Burger King or I can be a uh, physicist, and we're going to make the same amount of money. We're going to both succeed in the same manner. We'll have the same level of housing and the same level of, of this and that. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a competitive world we live in. And you know what? I, I think it's important that these young men learn to compete. I think it's important that they're aggressive, that they learn to be men. And in this case, we got a, we got a fellow here that's writing from the Word of God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. The Christian life's not about just getting through it. It's about obtaining. It's about winning the prize. It's about reaching the goal. It's about accomplishing something on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just about coming to church and sitting in the pew or reading your Bible every day and praying. It's about doing something that will matter in eternity. And we see here that the man or the person writing the passage again, God, of course, utilizing them, says, listen, there is a race to run. And everybody has a race to run. And everybody's goal ought to be to win the race, not just finish it, but to win it. I used to get a little perturbed with some of the guys in my unit when I was in the military, and they'd they'd finish the race all right, but during the course of the race, they'd stop and have a cigarette and walk a little ways, smoke their cigarettes as they walked along, and 
I'd be just like I'm running right by now. I wasn't the fastest guy in the world, but I wouldn't walk. I mean, it's a race. You're supposed to be racing, whether it's against yourself and a, a time clock or whether it's against a group of men or a group of ladies. It doesn't really matter. But the fact is, you try to do your very best. At least that's what I was taught growing up. But it was they were content to just finish the race, not to win the race. Well, I'm afraid sometimes it seems that believers today are just content to just kind of hang in the race a little bit. We don't really want to push ourselves. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to take any risk or make, take any chances in, any le- in the least form. We'd rather just be safe and, well, we'll finish. We don't want to push ourselves at all. We don't want to be the best Christian we can be. We just want to be mediocre. Well, that's not what the passage teaches here. The passage teaches us that every one of us in this room have a race to run. And every one of us ought to have a goal to win, not just to finish. I don't hear a lot of amens because that's how much our culture has affected the church today. That's how much it's affected the church. We live in a bubble today, an ungodly one. And the only source outside of that bubble is this book, the Word of God. It's the only thing that gets us outside of this world in which we live. And the truth is we are inundated and we are saturated with the world today. And so much so that our culture has rubbed off on us in the church. The race. Everyone ought to want to be the best Christian they can be. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. The race. We see the reward. This gentleman or this writer, he understands that, yes, there's a race to run. There's a goal to win. And you want to obtain the prize. You want to receive that prize. But notice he goes on to say, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. We an incorruptible crown. We an incorruptible. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Notice again the reward. This reward is an eternal payoff. See, you don't put forth any effort in this life that you're not rewarded for forever. You know, I, I know going to school, we'll go to school possibly for 12 years, and then we turn around and go to college, and, and, and that may reward us in this life. There'll be a number of people that never even reach the pearly gates that are rewarded in this life. Oh, they may be rewarded with better pay. They may be rewarded with better social status, uh, rewarded in a number of different ways because of the work that they put in, the effort, and so be it. That's a wonderful thing. You ought to work hard. You ought to try to be the best you can be at anything you put your hand to. The Bible says, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. So there's no problem with that, and I'm okay with that. Every one of you young men ought to try to be as educated as you possibly can be, try to be as as vocational as you can possibly be, to to be as, as, as effective in a world in which we live as you can possibly be. Don't just settle. But the reality is, is that there's a reward for the believer's life. As we run this Christian race, as we give our very best to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a reward that's not just in this life, although that it is a life that's rewarded now. It is one that's rewarded for eternity. And what a wonderful thing. And that's what we see here in the passage. The race, we see the reward. Notice the response then of this man in verse 26. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. That's pretty good, isn't it? He says, listen, you know what he's saying? He says, I don't want to get sidetracked. 
I don't want to lose sight of the finish line. You know, if we're not careful in the world we live, there are so many distractions, aren't there? You know, I obviously just returned from the Philippines, and over in the Philippines, their internet's not that good right now. I mean, it's, 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 it works, but it doesn't always work, if you know what I mean. And I was talking to the pastor, and I said, you know, you're starting to see progress in your country, and I'm not so convinced it's good. You know, you got new cars on the road, you got uh, more modern buildings going up, you've got antennas at every home, even in the villages and some of the outlying areas, and that means there's television there and where there wasn't just 12 years ago. And now all of a sudden we have access to the internet, the World Wide Web, and all the influences that come along with that. He says to me, you know, it's, an, it's a wonderful thing here. If you invite somebody to come to your church anniversary, they take it as an honor. And they say, are you kidding? You're inviting me to your anniversary? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll go. They're very accommodating like that, the people are there. It won't be the case in 10 years from now with the Internet, with television, and with all the other things like basketball that they're being flooded with now in their culture. That's going to change things. They're not going to have time again. They're not going to find it as honorable and as, as a much of a privilege to go to a church service. They'll say, well, I'm a little bit busy now. I've got what I need to make me content and happy. I've got fellowship with a phone. I've got fellowship through the Internet. I've got fellowship through a chat room. I've got fellowship through a television set. I mean, all of these things that keep Americans so preoccupied and distracted from the things of Christ. This particular believer says, Listen, I understand there's a race to be run. And I'm very aware that there is a reward, not just now, but into eternity. And that means that I've got to be very careful then. I don't want to be sidetracked. I don't want to lose sight. I want to keep my eyes on the finish line because I want to finish strong. I don't want to just get through it. I want to do something for God and ultimately understand the reward of it all. Notice in verse 27 also, the resolve. So he's, he's responded now. I don't want to lose sight. I want to get sidetracked. So what's he going to do about it? But I keep under my body, he says, and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Isn't that interesting? I mean, this guy here, probably the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, he says... Listen, you know what my great fear is? Is that one day, I'll be, I'll be the preacher. I'll be the man of God. I'll be the one winning others to Jesus Christ. And yet, before it's over with, I'll be the one that's a castaway. Do you want to know why so many men and women fall today? Because they're not convinced they can. The Apostle Paul, within the context of the passage, is very clear in his own mind. I know that I'm mere flesh. I realize that I could fall at any moment. I understand that the moment I get my eyes off of the finish line and I get my eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ, I could be that castaway. And he's probably the greatest Christian to ever live. He's cautious, though. He's going to take steps to remain in the race and to finish. He's going to bring his body, as he says, keep under my body. Bring it into subjection. See the race, the reward, the response, and the resolve. You know, it ought to be the desire of every man and woman here to finish strong and win the race. 
Especially since God in His Word has promised that you and I are more than conquerors already. But despite the many promises of God that describe us as conquerors, that express the fact that we are overcomers, it seems more and more often today that both men and women find themselves bound by sin and taken captive by Satan. It just seems to be par for the course. Let me describe a few scenarios to you. A wife sits sheepishly across my desk, wringing her hands and wiping tears from her cheeks. She begins to describe the events over the last few days that have redefined her life, her family, her future, her marriage. With shuddered speech, she begins to share how she uncovered an avalanche of deceit, a mountain of secrecy. Her best friend in the world has not been honest or faithful. He's been viewing other women on the internet and indulging in pornography. That scenario is very common today in the church. Oh, how about another one? A husband comes home from work each day to find his wife a little bit more cold and indifferent toward him. I mean, the closeness has faded and the intimacy's lost. Fewer smiles fill the room and instead a feeling of discontentment kind of just permeates, intrudes the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, and every other room in the house. He feels helpless and hopeless as he he somehow tries to rekindle the lost happiness and the passion that he once experienced in his marriage with this particular woman, only to find out that she's found someone online has been communicating for some time now. Sadly, there are a number of believers who have found themselves morally and ethically compromised in our generation. It's just normal, right? I mean, everybody has a problem. Everybody has a sin. It's just the way it is, preacher. Everybody, you have your sin, I have mine. Right? That's what people want to believe. Sure, pacifies the conscience. Makes us feel better about our sin and self. But it doesn't change the fact that God in heaven doesn't see things the way man sees it. He still says there's a race to be run. There's a reward to be gained. There's a certain response that should be expected of the believer and a resolve that should be placed in their life. Character has been eroded in our culture. And moral and ethical problems are at an epic proportion as a result. And sadly enough, it's not just the world. It's the church. Why do you think our churches are weak today? Because our marriages are weak and because our families are weak, because our homes are falling apart. That's the real issue. It isn't our government and it's not our world. It's our hearts. And if you're genuinely concerned about the Christian race and finishing strong, I think you might want to take a moment and consider the message I'm going to share with you tonight and maybe next week too depending on how far we get seeing that the introduction lasted a lot longer than it usually does so we'll see what we can get accomplished tonight but I'm, I'm, I'm serious about wanting to help people especially people that are my family and you're my family and sadly enough we're watching families disintegrate 
watching homes disintegrate. And it begins with dad and it begins with mom. And we still have a race to run, believers. God help us to run that race and run it to win and put every precaution we can in place to protect us so that we don't get off track and off course and ultimately ruin it all. So let's consider this today as we consider this lesson, some practical steps that each of us can take to avoid becoming a statistic. First of all, let's consider the problem. The problem. The problem is, I guess could be defined in a couple of ways. Number one, the depravity of society. The problem, the depravity of society. Take your Bible, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, would you? 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Let's read through verse 5. I'll read aloud. You read silently with me, if you would. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be... Now, this is interesting to me. Let's, Let's stop there for just a moment. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And you know what we define that as, you and I? We look at our, our world, we consider the media, we consider Paris in the last few days, and we go, perilous times have come. Perilous times. ISIS is killing people without reason, just senseless murder. We look at the news and the newspapers and the, the, the news reports on television and we see people harming one another and hurting one another. We watch our economy uh, just disintegrating before our eyes. We see the morality of our country falling apart in a sense. We, we look at this thing from the standpoint of what's taking place. Oh my, look at that event and this event and that event. Surely our world is in trouble and wow, what perilous times we live in. That's how we define it. Now let's see how God looks at perilous times. It's pretty interesting to me. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Oh, really? A lot of people going to be killed senselessly? No. He says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Wow. Perilous times. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. You know what he attacks? He says, you want to know what perilous times are? A heart that isn't in tune with God. That makes it perilous. When you have a society of people, including the church, that has turned their back on me, that has allowed the world, the flesh, and the devil to have preeminence in their lives. That's perilous times. Oh, sure, the rest of it goes with it. But the reality is, is it's not about a bombing in Paris. It's not about some terrorist attack on American soil. It's about the fact that Satan has sowed seeds of doubt, faithlessness, sinfulness, and lust in your heart. And all the other things that go with it, arrogance and pride and selfishness. That is the tragedy. That's the peril of our day. Let 
the depravity of society. It all begins in the heart of man, the heart of a woman. And in this particular prophecy, we note that ultimately society is affected. And in those end times that he's referring to, those perilous times, he says there'll be three things that men and women love. Self, money, pleasure. Self, money, pleasure. That is what is going, we're going to see elevated. See, the love of self is nothing less than humanism. And that is the religion of America today. Humanism. The love of money is materialism. That's America's God today. Money. Oh, our religion? Humanism. Our money or materialism? That's our God. But when your religion is focused on self and your God is money, then the result is always a lifestyle based on the love of pleasure, which is hedonism. We always say, you know, we used to say years ago, he's just a heathen, an old heathen. Meaning that he's godless. No, re- no, no reference of God, no no consideration of God. He's a heathen. She's a heathen. They live their life for self, for pleasure, hedonism. Needless to say, that's the cultural climate that we live in today in America. You know, and if we're not careful, you know, we're quick to feel cheated by God as we look around and see all of these worldly people apparently succeeding. We look at their lives and we think to ourselves, look at all the money they have. They don't even serve the Lord and they're comfortable. They can pay their bills. Their needs are met. And, you know, and we can, we can say all day long, that's natural. That's normal to feel that way. Not for a believer it isn't. No, that's unnatural for a believer. Because that's still called being selfish. That's still called being about yourself. You say, but you have no consideration for... No, I'm not saying that I don't understand. I'm just saying God doesn't. Into my flesh, I understand completely why people might play the old violin and feel sorry for themselves and look at the world and say, what's wrong? I just serve God and I have nothing to show for it. And look at them living like the devil. And boy, God, they just the God of this world blessing them. It's sad. But it is the reality of life. Look at Psalm 73, verse 1. They seem to indulge themselves, and yet they prosper. And you know, that's exactly the dilemma that David found himself in. So I guess in one sense, we could all say at times, if we feel this way for some reason, we're in pretty good company. Does that sound right? I don't know. David ended up making some pretty big mistakes in his life. So I'm not so sure that's good company. We know he was a a man after God's own heart at one point. We know that he ultimately still was the, the, uh, the, the, basically the king by which every other king was judged. Notice what it says in chapter 73, verse 1. David, even he fell prey to this idea, this thought, this ideology. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of our clean heart. Now that's interesting to me. See, notice what he says. With his lips he says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Okay, David, a psalm of Asaph, really. 
Who cares? David, Asaph, they're all the same in my opinion. They're all the Lord (laughs) writing to us. Notice what he says here. This guy, he's got the words. He's got the words. But look at his heart, verse 2. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, that is the temptation that we have today. Our depraved society paints such a beautiful picture of what life can be. Oh, I know that if you'll look past the exterior, you can see the damage. But the reality is, is that most of us don't take the time to see past it. All we see is the pretty little skirts. All we see is the nice looking faces. All we see is the wonderful dripping cold sweat off of a beer. Boy, it all looks so gratifying. It looks so wonderful as all those young people hang out and have a party and they're just all so happy and having a great time. I mean, we really buy into the advertising of the world. Whether we want to admit it or not, we do. We love the the songs and we like the sounds. And boy, I tell you, the glitter and the glit, it all is so appealing to our flesh. It does. It appeals to us. But we're called Christians. We're believers. We're supposed to be different. I mean, he's supposed to have residency in our heart. We should actually be very grieved by many of the things we recognize and see in the world. But let's be honest. We really aren't as grieved as we probably should be. And David in this case, actually, not David, but Asaph, he actually views the world and says, I envy them. I envy them. Have you ever envied the world? Oh, I have. I'm not going to lie to you. I've wanted what they have sometimes. And why are we so quick to try to hide our our real true selves? Because it's ugly, isn't it? But we have a situation here. What's the problem here? How can we avoid? Well, we have a problem, first of all, we have to face. The depravity of society. We have to deal with that. It's a very wicked society. And yet, if we're not careful, even as believers, as wicked as it is, we are compelled to or drawn to it. Because of our flesh. Look back again at 2 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 1 again. The Bible talks about knowing this also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And he goes through this list of a descriptive list of what mankind has become and, and what their emphasis is and their priorities are. And the passage basically describes a society that's wallowing in despair. It kind of reads like the 11 o'clock news. I mean, the news reports are full of boastful, arrogant revilers. They're ungrateful and they're unholy. It's filled with stories about rebellious children and reckless haters of God. We're constantly bombarded with the opinions of those who profess themselves to be wise but are in reality fools. Romans chapter 1, verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Everybody's an expert. Everybody knows so much about human psychology, the mind, 
the needs. So much so that what we want to do is throw condoms to our teenagers and say, well, you're just mere animals. You might as well enjoy yourself because that's where it ends in the grave anyway. So just do whatever you want. You can't hold back. You can't really subdue that nature. It's just who you are. You're from an ape anyway. You're just a mere animal. You might as well indulge yourself in animalistic behavior. That's exactly what we're told. And those are the people that we send our children to to listen and learn from. And those are the ones that we're being inundated with and our minds are being flooded with. And we wonder why we struggle in our Christian walk. We wonder why when we read our Bibles, we get nothing out of it. You say, are you against all society? No, what I'm against is this reckless abandon that we somehow feel we don't have to put any checks or balances in our lives and what we watch, what we listen to, where we go, who we're with. We somehow think we're big enough, strong enough to handle every problem and situation and deal with it from a spiritual perspective when in reality the Bible says what we're dealing with is a culture and a society of depravity. And if we will continue to submit ourselves to that depravity, we will be taken by it also. Whether we have God living in us or not, the flesh will be fed more than the spirit and we will subdue or be subdued and we will ultimately be crushed. I, I, I love a good show. I love to eat pizza and drink a good tall pot. I like it. I enjoy it. But I better be careful what I'm watching. You know, I was on that plane coming back, going to and coming back from the Philippines. And let me tell you, there was a bunch of, in, nowadays when you go on a flight like that, an international flight, they have movies you can watch. And it's right on the back here, and it's free. You don't have to pay any extra. I mean, you're paying plenty for the ticket already, trust me. So here you are, you get these movies. Well, I have, I have a, a personal conviction in my life. I, I won't watch anything that's past PG. If it's PG-13, I won't watch it. Now, again, some PGs you can't even watch, let's be honest. But, but I have this thing in my life, at least, that I don't watch. Well, let me tell you something. All the best movies that I found on that thing... Almost every one of them was at least PG-13. It was driving me crazy. I was like, I want to watch that one. And I thought, maybe I could give in because I am not real. I'm not in America. I mean, I, I am in international space here. I'm not really on earth right now. I'm kind of up there. You know, it's not really like I'm breaking any rules on earth. I tried to reason it out in my mind. But you know what? Something kept coming back to me. No, you made this decision a long time ago. And that decision, that principle, established your actions. You don't have to make this decision again, Mark. You've already made it once. Now, all I'm saying is, I was tempted because there were some things I would like to have seen. And I know in my heart, there was a few of those movies I could have watched and there was probably nothing sexual in them. There might not have been a bad, bad language. There's just a lot of killing and fighting. And I love it. I love violence. As long as it's not me. So I guess in that sense, I could have, you know, I could have justified it. But let me say, again, it's just all around us is my point. Everywhere you turn, there's opportunity for us as believers to be saturated with that which is unseemly or would not be at least beneficial or prosperous to us. So we see the depravity of society. It's a real problem for us. 
it presents an issue. If we're going to stay clean, if we're going to stay pure, if we're going to avoid becoming a statistic, we need to be very aware of the problem. First of all, the depravity of society. Number two, the drought of Scripture. The drought of Scripture. Look at you on Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. I have mine written out, praise the Lord. <laughs> that Amos, he, he likes to hide in that Old Testament, doesn't he? He, gets, he, get, he hides. Gets tucked away in there. Likes to play games. A little hide and seek, little Amos. How many of you ever heard of famous Amoses? Now, though, that Amos is all right. I like that Amos, too. It doesn't like me a whole lot. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. There we say, the Bible says, Behold, <clears throat> the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. And we know what a famine is. Lack of food. Not a famine of bread. Whoop, he just, whoa, not a food. Wait a second. So not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And that's something. He says, Behold, and the, the days come, say the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. There's going to come a day where the Lord's going to say, you know what? You've chosen not to listen to me. You've chosen not to adhere to my word. And so guess what? Fine. Let me have my word. Okay, you don't want it? I'll take it back. It's mine. I'll keep it. You don't want it? I'll keep it. <clears throat> you know, a Gallup poll on reading the Bible revealed that 16% of Americans say that they read the Bible every day. 16%. Now, that's Americans. They, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that includes a Koran. I don't know if that includes, you know, different Bibles. I assume they just mean the Bible that we understand the Bible to mean. But that would include every religion. That would include every denomination. It's just Americans. 16% of Americans say that they read the Bible every day. 21% say that they read it weekly. 12% say that they read the Bible monthly. 10% say that uh, uh, say less than monthly. And 41% say they rarely or never read the Bible. Basically, the conclusion that Barna comes to is this. American Christians are biblically illiterate. Yes, sir. He goes on to say, although most of them contend that the Bible contains truth and is worth knowing... And most of them argue that they know all of the relevant truths and principles. Our research shows otherwise. And the trend line is frightening. The younger a person is, the less they understand about the Christian faith. And that's what Barnes' conclusion was. Isn't that amazing? He opens up by saying, American Christians... He didn't say Americans, even though the poll was for Americans. He says American Christians are biblically illiterate. I wonder if I went around the room tonight and I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a little verse popcorn. So I'm going to point to a person and he's going to stand up and quote a verse and then he can point to anybody in the room and they have to stand up and give a verse, quote a verse. Then they point to somebody and they have to stand up and quote a verse and so forth and so on. I wonder how many in this room would say, outside of John 3.16 and Jesus wept, I can't tell you of a verse that I have memorized. 
We can come to church every single week, hear the Word of God preached and proclaimed, listen to the choir sing and all the specials, sit in Sunday school, and never once know the Bible. You realize that? Listen, you're here on Wednesday night. Probably on this crew, there'd be a lot more that could do that, and I trust a number of you would be able to do so. However, according to this man, Barna and their research, if you take a normal group of Christians, that is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. We're illiterate. We are illiterate. When I was over in the Philippines, it was interesting. One of the churches I went to, they did just that. And they started popping up, giving verses. And then the one girl that jumped up, she started to quote a verse, and it got all discombobulated. Everybody started laughing at her. They're like, <laughs> she ripped another verse, and it was twice as long as all the others. I mean, she just was rambling. They were rambling. It wasn't just the normal verses either. John 3.16. Not one person quoted John 3.16, mind you. But they were all kind of different verses about the love of Christ, about the Lord Jesus, about His power, His grace. And I thought, wow, impressive. Impressive. Singles, be ready. Singles, start memorizing a verse now if you don't know one because come class time, we are going to try that. And last tonight, let me just give you this very quickly. Truly, it's short. The depth of spirituality. The problem that we face, obviously, is the depravity of society. We face, we, we, we face the drought of Scripture. Just a lack of desire and a lack of understanding and knowledge for the Word of God. But then finally, the depth of spirituality. <clears throat> Turn in Psalms chapter 1, please, as I say a few things along the way. When we consider the state of our society and the neglect of the Word of God, is it really any wonder that we're experiencing so much failure in the Christian life? I mean, really. I'm amazed sometimes at how ignorant to reality people are. I just don't understand how people struggle so much. Are you kidding me? I do look around us. I mean, I do look within us. Are you kidding me? Makes perfect sense. And when you consider this truth, the depth of spirituality, you know we got some issues. And it's really going to create a problem for us if we truly intend to finish strong and win the race and receive the reward that the Lord Jesus would have for us. Our Christianity is a thousand miles wide and only two inches deep today. We're surface dwellers whose roots hardly scratch the surface in many cases. The winds of temptation blow and we are seemingly helpless to its forces. We can't control our speech. We can't control our thoughts. We can't control our actions. Why is that? It's called a very thin level of Christianity, a surface level. Notice what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a, what? Tree planted 
by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Notice the prosperity. Notice the, the wonderful growth that's taking place here. Fruit is coming forth in its season. Man, he's seeing the fruit of the Lord in his life. He's seeing God blessing in the life. He's experiencing the joy of the Lord. Man, I mean, it is a peaceful life, a good life. But notice he is called a tree and is planted by that river. And his roots are growing deep into the soil. We have some soil in which our roots ought to grow deep. And unfortunately, we are, as I mentioned, surface dwellers. Our Christianity is about two inches deep, it seems. We hardly scratch the surface in many cases. We don't have verses memorized. We don't understand the Word of God. We can't apply the truths. We, 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 we're, we're at a loss when temptation comes. We don't know where to turn and how to overcome it. The depth of spirituality. You want to know what the depth of your spirituality is? Let a brother or sister offend you and see how you handle it. Then see how, how deep your spirituality runs. Let somebody in church get on the wrong side of you. See how you deal with it. That'll, deter, that'll give you an idea of an indication of how your spirit is, how deep your spirituality runs. Go ahead and be defrauded financially by another believer. Be used, abused by somebody like that. And we'll see how deep your spirituality really is. Let the pastor preach a message on your pet sin. Step on your toes and do a tap dance. See how you respond to it. It'll tell you how deep your spirituality is. How'd you treat your faith promise? Are you a tither like the Bible tells you to be? That'll give you an indication of your spiritual depth. Are you obedient to God in that area too? Or only the ones that are convenient for you? See, the depth of our spirituality can be gauged not just in our actions, obviously, although those are pretty clear ones. It's gauged in our attitude, in our heart attitude toward others. We want to finish strong. We'll finish this later, but we want to finish the race and we want to finish strong and we want the reward that God has for us. How are we going to do that? How are we going to avoid becoming a statistic? Well, we noted the problem first. We need to face the problem, the depravity of society, the drought of Scripture, and the depth of spirituality. Let's deal with those things as we face this week and then come together maybe next week and we'll start learning how we can deal with it in a very practical sense, how we can deal with sinful lifestyles and address those issues in our life that we know don't belong there. And in order to honor Christ, we need to deal with them. Father, we come to you.